Chapter 5 of Fighting the Whales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fighting the Whales by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter 5 A Storm, a Man Overboard, and a Rescue. The scenes in a whaleman's life are varied and very stirring. Sometimes he is floating on the calm ocean, idling about the deck and whistling for a breeze, when all of a sudden a loud cry is heard, There she blows! And in a moment the boats are in the water and he is engaged in all the toils of an exciting chase. Then comes a battle with the great leviathan of the deep, with all its risks and dangers. Sometimes he is unfortunate. The decks are clean. He has nothing to do. At other times he is lucky, cutting in and trying out, engage all his energies and attention. Frequently storms toss him on the angry deep and show him, if he will but learn the lesson, how helpless a creature he is, and how thoroughly dependent at all times for life, safety, and success upon the arm of God. Trying out the oil, although not so thrilling a scene as many a one in his career, is nevertheless extremely interesting, especially at night, when the glare of the fires in the triworks casts a deep red glow on the faces of the men, on the masts and sails, and even out upon the sea. The triworks consisted of two huge melting pots fixed upon brickwork fireplaces between the fore and main masts. While some of the men were down in the blubber room cutting the blanket pieces, as the largest masses are called, others were pitching the smaller pieces on deck, where they were seized by two men who stood near a block of wood called a horse with a mincing knife to slash the junks so as to make them melt easily. These were then thrown into the melting pots by one of the mates who kept feeding the fires with such scraps of blubber as remain after the oil is taken out. Once the fires were fairly set a-going, no other kind of fuel was required than scraps of blubber. As the boiling oil rose, it was baled into copper cooling tanks. It was the duty of two other men to dip it out of these tanks into casks, which were then headed up by our cooper and stowed away in the hold. As the night advanced, the fires became redder and brighter by contrast, the light shone and glittered on the decks, and as we plied our dirty work I could not help thinking— what would my mother say if she could get a peep at me now? The ship's crew worked and slept by watches, for the fires were not allowed to go out all night. About midnight I sat down on the windlass to take a short rest and began talking to one of the men, Fred Borders by name. He was one of the quietest and most active men in the ship, and being quite a young man, not more than nineteen, he and I drew to one another and became very intimate. "'I think we're going to have a breeze, Bob,' said he, as a sharp puff of wind crossed the deck, driving the black smoke to leeward and making the fire flare up in the triworks. "'I hope it won't be a storm, then,' said I, "'for it will oblige us to put out the fires.' Just then Tom Lokins came up, ordered Fred to go and attend to the fires, sat down opposite to me on the windlass, and began to lay down the law in regards to storms. "'You see, Bob Ludbury,' said he, beginning to fill his pipe, "'young fellers like you don't know nothing about the weather.' "'Cause why? You've got no experience. "'Now, I'll put you up to a dodge concerning this very thing.' "'I never found out what was the dodge that Tom, in his wisdom, was to have put me up to, "'for at that moment the captain came on deck and gave orders to furl the top-gallant sails. Three or four of us ran up the rigging like monkeys, "'and in a few minutes the sails were lashed to the yards. "'The wind now began to blow steadily from the nor'west, "'but not so hard as to stop our triworks for more than an hour.' 
After that it blew stiff enough to raise a heavy sea, and we were compelled to slack the fires. This was all the harm it did to us, however, for although the breeze was stiffish, it was nothing like a gale. As the captain and the first mate walked the quarter-deck together, I heard the former say to the latter, I think we had as well take in a reef in the topsails. All hereabouts the fishing ground is good, we don't need to carry on. The order was given to reduce sail, and the men lay out on the topsail yards. I noticed that my friend Fred Borders was the first man to spring up the shrouds and lay out on the main topsail yard. It was so dark that I could scarcely see the masts. While I was gazing up, I thought I observed a dark object drop from the yard. At the same moment there was a loud shriek, followed by a plunge in the sea. This was succeeded by the sudden cry, "'Man overboard!' and instantly the whole ship was in an uproar. No one who has not heard that cry can understand the dreadful feelings that are raised in the human breast by it. My heart at first seemed to leap into my mouth and almost choke me. Then a terrible fear, which I cannot describe, shot through me when I thought it might be my comrade Fred Borders. But these thoughts and feelings passed like lightning in a far shorter time than it takes to write them down. The shriek was still ringing in my ears when the captain roared, "'Down your helm! Stand by to lower away the boats!' At the same moment he seized a light hen-coop and tossed it overboard, and the mate did the same with an oar in the twinkling of an eye. Almost without knowing what I did or why I did it, I seized a great mass of oakum and rubbish that lay on the deck saturated with oil. I thrust it into the embers of the fire in the triworks and hurled it blazing into the sea. The ship's head was thrown into the wind, and we were brought to as quickly as possible. A gleam of hope arose within me on observing that the mass I had thrown overboard continued still to burn, but when I saw how quickly it went astern, notwithstanding our vigorous efforts to stop the ship, my heart began to sink, and when, a few moments after, the light suddenly disappeared, despair seized upon me, and I gave my friend up for lost. At that moment, strange to say, thoughts of my mother came into my mind. But there was no time to be lost, and I threw myself with a good deal of energy into the first boat that was lowered and pulled at the oar as if my own life depended on it. A lantern had been fastened to the end of an oar and set up in the boat, and by its faint light I could see that the men looked very grave. Tom Lokins was steering, and I sat near him, pulling the aft oar. "'Do you think we've any chance, Tom?' said I. A shake of the head was his only reply. "'It must have been here away,' said the mate, who stood up in the bow with a coil of rope at his feet and a boat-hook in his hand. "'Hold on, lads. Did anyone hear a cry?' No one answered. We all ceased pulling and listened intently, but the noise of the waves and the whistling of the winds were all the sounds we heard. "'What's that, floating on the water?' said one of the men suddenly. "'Where away?' cried everyone eagerly. "'Right off the leap bow. There, don't you see it?' At that moment... A faint cry came floating over the black water and died away in the breeze. The single word, hurrah, burst from our throats with all the power of our lungs, and we bent to our oars till we well-nigh tore the rollocks out of the boat. "'Hold hard! Stern all!' roared the mate as we went flying down to leeward, and almost ran over the hen-coop, to which a human form was seen to be clinging with the tenacity of a drowning man. We had swept down so quickly that we shot past it, in an agony of fear lest my friend should be again lost in the darkness, I leapt up and sprang into the sea. 
Tom Lokins, however, had noticed what I was about. He seized me by the collar of my jacket just as I reached the water, and held me with a grip like a vice till one of the men came to his assistance and dragged me back into the boat. In a few moments more we reached the hen-coop, and Fred was saved. He was half dead with cold and exhaustion, poor fellow, but in a few minutes he began to recover, and before we reached the ship he could speak. His first words were to thank God for his deliverance. Then he added, and thanks to the man that flung that light overboard. I should have gone down, but for that it showed me where the hen-coop was. I cannot describe the feeling of joy that filled my heart when he said this. Aye, who was it that throwed that fire overboard? inquired one of the men. Dunno, replied another. I think it was the captain. You'll find that out when we get aboard, cried the mate. Pull away, lads. In five minutes Fred Borders was passed up the side and taken down below. In two minutes more we had him stripped naked, rubbed dry, wrapped in hot blankets, and set down on one of the lockers with a hot brick at his feet. End of chapter 5